Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today I'm very excited to start a whole new series of Loopcasts after our winter break. So we're back. We've got all kinds of great guests and topics that we're lining up or that we have lined up. So stay tuned for more guests and subjects that we'll be looking at for the next series. And then secondly, I'm really happy to have Hillary Matfest back on the Loopcast. So first of all, welcome back on the Loopcast, Hillary. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. I am too, because this is a great topic, and Hillary has had experience in the field, experience here with research, so she's the perfect person to talk about this. And for those that might not know of Hillary's background and interests, Hillary is a research analyst whose work centers on the intersection of governance and security in sub-Saharan Africa, and she works as a senior program officer with the Center for Democracy and Development in Abuja as a research analyst with the Nigerian Social Violence Project. She's also a freelance journalist, so you can Google her name and find all kinds of articles and pieces she's written on topics of her interest. And last but not least, and very exciting, she has a book on gender and Boko Haram that is coming out soon, so keep an eye out for that, and that will be with Zed Publishers. So congratulations on having a book coming out, because that's a huge accomplishment. Thanks, yeah, it's, uh, I had always wanted to, to write a book, and so now seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and getting reviews in, it's a really exciting process, um, and I'm, I'm proud of the book as it's come together. Uh, so I'm really excited to kind of let it loose in the world and be able to engage with even more people about what I've found and different ideas and kind of raise the, the level of the conversation about women in Boko Haram, but in terrorist groups generally, and then the importance of gender equality for national security. And this is perfect timing with our topic of women in Boko Haram. So maybe just start the conversation off with, there have, been, there have been a lot of significant developments with Boko Haram in the last few months. So why don't you just give our listeners an idea of some of the very significant ones and if any of them have affected women and if so, how? Sure. So what's really interesting about the fight against Boko Haram is that the, the government's statements about how the fight is going uh, are often so fundamentally mismatched from the realities on the ground. And so, to the casual observer, you might have seen a number of reports from the President, Mohamed Bukhari, saying, you know, Boko Haram is technically defeated. Boko Haram is defeated. Boko Haram is on its heels. You know, we've we finally, uh, just weeks ago, they said they raided the Sambisa forest, and we finally ousted Boko Haram. Um, but the reality is uh, that the Nigerian government has been able to dislodge Boko Haram from the territory that they held in, I believe it was summer 2015. Um, but they haven't been able to actually hold the areas that they've cleared. Um, and so that's created sort of a, an alternatively governed landmass 
that's still subjected to a, a number of raids by Boko Haram insurgents. Uh, it's certainly not safe enough for people to return back to, um, and the government presence is there, but at times really uneven. Um, and so in terms of the, the kinetic fight against Boko Haram, it remains ongoing. Um, and if you really want to unpack what's actually happening, I, I would advise people to always take the government's, um, the government's statements with a grain of salt. Um, in terms of more directly related to, to gender issues, um, through a, a negotiation process uh, about which we have startlingly little information, um, more than 20 Chibok girls um, were released to the Nigerian government. Um, and so that was a significant development, both because it showed the efficacy of the, the global hashtag Bring Back Our Girls movement, um, but also revealed that the Nigerian government is willing and quite clearly able um, to negotiate with Boko Haram. And that opens up a, a whole kind of series of questions that I, I don't think anyone has the answer to uh, outside of the government uh, about the state of ongoing negotiations, uh, what is on the negotiation table, um, and what the insurgent demands are. Uh, and so as, as an analyst uh, currently in D.C. moving to Abuja very soon, it's been really frustrating to try and read between the lines about what the insurgents got in return for the release of the 21 Chibok girls. There were rumors that it was a prisoner swap, um, but the government vehemently denies that. Um, and then finally, and this is perhaps tangential to the to the quote-unquote, you know, war against Boko Haram, but the humanitarian crisis in the Lake Chad Basin has just spiraled. Um, it's clearly one of the worst disasters in the world at present. Um, I believe the UN estimates that 14 million people in the Lake Chad Basin are impacted by the food crisis that's underway. More than 2.3 million people have been displaced in Nigeria. It, you know, the, the humanitarian infrastructure, both in Nigeria and of the international community, is just really strained by this crisis. Um, and that's leading to the militarization of the humanitarian aid industry. Um, so you have uh, soldiers and policemen and vigilantes uh, guarding the camps, and that has led to a number of claims about sexual abuse against women and girls in the camps, um, and then corruption and graft affecting the efficacy of uh, the aid delivery. Um, and that's a really significant problem, not just for the kind of obvious moral reasons, but also because the, the government's sort of callousness and inability to provide for the displaced is really great PR fodder for terrorists. Um, and just, I, I believe it was the 16th or the 17th, the Nigerian Air Force accidentally bombed an IDP camp in Ron in Borno State. Uh, and I, I believe I just saw a press release from MSF saying that the death toll is now at more than 90 people. I mean, previously, Boko Haram had said, you know, Nigerian Air Force bombings had killed some of the Chibok girls and some of the other women that they had abducted. And now you have this kind of very clear example of a, of a government that really isn't prioritizing civilian protection and makes it even easier for the insurgency to portray themselves as, as vanguards of an aggrieved community.
And so I think that's, that's, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> no, that's great. And I mean, what you just said, you, well, we have seen it. We're currently seeing it, seeing the same thing in other conflicts with airstrikes, et cetera. Of, uh, governments have this idea that they're, they're fighting a group. However, it can also create a long-lasting effect of radicalization, joining groups and groups encouraging, like you said, representing the people and fighting for the people. So it sounds like a very volatile situation taking place in Nigeria at the moment. Yeah. So moving on to put our discussion before we get to women specifically in Boko Haram, I wanted to put it in context in the sense of what is the society like in Nigeria towards women? Do they have a lot of freedoms? Do they not have a lot of freedoms? Give us an idea of the society and the stigmas and the situation of women in Nigeria. Sure. So I actually have a, a whole chapter in my book about this, either the second or the third uh, provisional titles, Being a Girl in Nigeria. Um, and it, it was a heartbreaking chapter to write because the situation of women throughout the country uh, is so frustratingly marginalized and oppressed, and it's all the more acute in the country's northeast, which is the epicenter of the Boko Haram crisis. But just generally, um, on the UN's Gender Equality Index, um, I believe Nigeria ranked in the 150 range out of 188 countries that they surveyed. My memory might not serve me correctly, but I think it's 152nd of 188 countries. Um, Nigeria has one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the world. Uh, and in the Northeast, it's even higher. I believe I read that Northeast Nigeria has the highest maternal mortality rate in the world. Very few women have access to um, health care or assistance while they're, they're giving birth, um, which contributes to that. But another contributing factor is just the fact that girls are married at a very young age. Um, and so I think it was 30% of the girls in the country are married before the age of uh, 15. Uh, and Nigeria is a, an incredibly diverse country. And so to contextualize having an aggregated rate of child marriage of 30% um, means that you have these pockets where it's even higher. Um, and in the, in the Northeast, Northeast. the Northeast is absolutely one of those pockets where child marriage is just um, occurring at higher rates than in the South. An unfortunate result of child marriage, and this is sort of skimming through the, the low lights of, of being a girl in Nigeria, one of the effects of child marriage is that once you're a bride, you're very rarely a student, right? And so you have these incredibly low rates of literacy. Um, and I believe it was less than, oh, man, uh, yeah, less than a third of girls um, in their, their teenage years in the Northeast could read a full sentence. Um, uh, and that's compared to, you know, more than 90% of girls surveyed in the South were able to do so. So the life experience of a girl in Nigeria um, relative to other girls throughout the world is, um, you know, marginalized, oppressed, fewer educational opportunities, uh, less effective health 
um, healthcare and, and birthing assistance, and it's even more exaggerated in the countries on the east. Um, legally, women have had the right to vote in Nigeria since the mid-70s as the result of a military decree, uh, but political participation in the country is just really stunted for women, uh, and that's doubly so in the country's north. So the structural violence against women in Nigeria is just, it, it's really astounding. Um, I interviewed this lawyer uh, when I was doing fieldwork in Yola, Adamawa State, and she said, you know, the society is just stacked against women, uh, and you really feel it when you're there. Um, I think it's, you know, despite the fact that women are a huge contributor to the agricultural sector, I want to say 7% of the land in the north is owned by female farmers, um, legally. Uh, who has access is a whole different thing. And African land tenure systems, you know, you could have a hundred different podcasts on that, so I won't, like, delve into it. But even in areas where women are making tangible contributions, they're not able to make use of the legal protections for them, either because of um, intimidation, oppression, or because of a lack of knowledge about the services and legal protections available to them. So it's, it's a society that sounds like it's very much against women, and then we have Boko Haram that is using women in different ways. So to move and transition to Boko Haram, what type of ideology does the group have towards women? So that's interesting. Um, and the group's ideology is a little bit hard to pin down, um, in part because it's been such an innovative and adaptive group. Um, Adam Hagazi, who's a researcher who lives in Jos in Plateau State but travels extensively throughout the region, was telling me about how in a lot of Boko Haram's early preaching, Muhammad Yusuf would travel throughout um, the regional northeast into rural communities, he would discuss a lot about how, you know, men are, are for women. Men are tasked with the duties of caring for women, which is really an interesting way of, of framing that, uh, especially, I think, because of the, the group's not undeserved reputation for being bloodthirsty killers who abduct women and use young girls as suicide bombers. Um, but in my interviews with women who joined Boko Haram voluntarily, I did hear a lot about how uh, use of ideology and even continued under Shakao, there was really this idea that women were to be protected and shielded and, and kept in the home um, and not to be toiling, you know, in the fields. Um, and so when I asked these women to describe their lives in Boko Haram, it was, it was really interesting because I had to set aside my Western feminism, which is really hard to do, uh, and accept what they saw as an improvement in their situation. And so I talked to one girl who was, you know, 15. She married a Boko Haram insurgent as her second marriage. And I asked her, you know, why would she do this? And she told me with her first husband, she had to go work in his fields, um, and she didn't get an education, um, and the bride price was paid to her parents, not to her. But when she married a Boko Haram insurgent, they practiced purda, which is wife seclusion, uh, and she was given near-daily chronic education, which she considered to be of a very high quality. Um, 
And when she married this insurgent, even though the bride price was smaller, it was paid directly to her. And so it was really a way for these women to feel as if they could exercise their autonomy and improve uh, their situation, their, their quality of life, um, which is really interesting. Um, and in speaking with women who were abducted and those who joined voluntarily, women in the group, regardless of how they were brought in, were subjected to this chronic education. Um, and so in the West, you know, particularly if you're of the Fox News ilk, you're going to say, like, they're indoctrinating these girls, and certainly there is indoctrination there. But there's also chronic education requires literacy. And for a lot of these girls, particularly those who are abducted from more rural areas, this quality of education was something that they they found enticing is too strong of a word for those who are abducted, but perhaps surprising. Um, and, you know, despite the group's reputation for engaging in indiscriminate sexual violence, their brutality against women, all of which absolutely there have been instances of, um, there was a really interesting relationship that the insurgency had to the women that they abducted, which they refer to as the Mustadafin, which uh, is an a religious term, I believe, for kind of the the downtrodden. And so, so they, they saw these these abductions as improving the status of the women. Um, but women I spoke to who were Mustafin, women I spoke to who had joined voluntarily, uh, and researchers with Human Rights Watch that I spoke to all said that there was an effort to protect the Mustafin from sexual violence. And that really plays against the type of that we've seen portrayed in a lot of mass media outlets. Um, and it undermines some of the portrayals of this insurgency as just being sort of bloodthirsty, craven, uh, senselessly violent insurgents. You know, I mean, to, to divert resources to, to hold women that aren't immediately used for sexual gratification to divert resources to um, having daily chronic teaching. Um, I think the of the women that I spoke to, only a handful said that they had anything less than five times a week chronic education. I mean, that's, that's an incredible expenditure of resources um, that doesn't really jive with the portrayal of this group as just being, you know, sort of looking to either overrun villages without any, you know, uh, without any sense of shame about the, the civilians that they're killing or those who are trying to overtake trade routes, um, which are pretty lucrative. And that's not to say that Boko Haram hasn't overrun villages uh, killing thousands of civilians at a time, because they absolutely have. And that's not to say that a number of cells aren't involved in the very lucrative fish and cattle trades, because they certainly are, but it reveals another aspect of the group that I think we need to understand and unpack if we want to be able to effectively rehabilitate members and then prevent further civilian, um, you know, kind of tacit or overt support for the insurgents. And I think what you just mentioned is really 
interesting because, as you said, the media portrayal of women in Boko Haram tends to be more of victimhood, kidnapping, forced marriages, and so forth. But what you've described, it almost seems like some of the women find being married to fighters or involved in the group in one way or another as somewhat of a source of empowerment. And I'm, of course, I'm not speaking for all women that have been, whether it's abducted or married into Boko Haram or any other situation, but the cases that you've just mentioned sound like they actually are gaining things from being a part of the group. That's absolutely it. And it's, you know, I I think anyone that's listening to this now can hear how we're both tiptoeing around that because it's, you know, I can almost feel the pushback immediately. And I've been called a jihadi sympathizer um, a lot. But the fact is we can moralize this all that we'd like. But I don't think that that's going to be as effective as trying to understand where these women are coming from and understanding that in a context where your opportunities are so limited because your state and your government has just so profoundly underserved you, that joining an insurgency like Boko Haram might be the most effective way of getting the resources that you and your children need. And kind of going back to sort of the system and how women are treated and their rights in Nigeria in general, has there been any debate within the society about women's roles, maybe more empowerment, more freedoms? And if so, has this helped Boko Haram in their own rhetoric? So in 2016, the Gender Equality Opportunities Act, it's the GEO bill, um, was voted down in the Nigerian Congress, which, you know, I have a number of female activist friends in Nigeria, was a really frustrating blow. Um, I I don't think that Boko Haram is necessarily, you know, kind of stumped on that or even acknowledged it. But that's, it's, it's a frustrating development because we have this incredible kind of burgeoning sub-literature with folks like, you know, Valerie Hudson um, uh, and her co-authors who wrote Sex and Wealth Peace and, you know, Dorothy Cohen, Elizabeth Wood, um, all these really great scholars who, who talk about the role of women in wartime and then the role also of women in national security. And we have... Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't in, uh, mention now the Institute for Inclusive Security, which does fantastic work on this. But we have now, you know, empirical, quantitative, and qualitative backing for the notion that the status of women in society is one of the best predictors about whether or not that country will go to war, either civil or international. And yet, there's still this pushback in the policy world, both in Nigeria and, frankly, here in the United States, with people that think that women's rights are pink, frilly little issues that we can push off to the side while real men deal with, like, how many tanks they need to order to crush this insurgency. And the boys can play with their tanks all that they want, but if they lay the foundation for a continuously inequitable society in their counterinsurgency and counterterrorism operations, they're going to be ordering tanks until the cows come home. And I'm tired of it. (laughs) So, uh... Unfortunately, uh, there has been a debate in Nigeria about the role of women and increasing women's rights 
Um, but it's a fight that's going to have to continue until people, frankly, men in positions of power, uh, yank their heads out of their rears and realize that if they continue to, to wage counterinsurgency in the way that they have, um, which has meant marginalizing and oppressing communities whose hearts and minds they're purportedly winning, uh, this is going to be a much longer war than it perhaps has to be. Well, moving on. To, no, and I'm glad you said that because being a female in security issues as well, it, it is very much of a male-dominant field. So it's it's yeah. good to have a, a fellow female on the show. I'm not making this a women's fest, everyone that's listening, but it's good to have a different perspective because everyone has different views and sometimes gender does play into that. So, yeah. Well, and I'll, you know, here's a little bit of an anecdote. Before I went to my degree for the first time, which... Uh, my degree is where Boko Haram was founded. It's one of the few safe areas in Borno State, but it still gets suicide bombs. Anyway, so the first time that I went to my degree, uh, my then boss suggested that I meet with uh, the regional security office, the embassy. And I did, said he would calm down, so my parents would calm down, uh, because not only am I a woman, I'm young, so I still have to check in with a number of people above me. Um, and I went to meet with these guys, and they're nice, but they're all military types. And so they're sitting there chatting with me about how what I need to worry about in my degree is being kidnapped. And I'm just sitting there listening to these men explain this to me when through the Nigerian Social Violence Project, I and my research partner, Nate, have coded every incident of lethal, uh, non-criminal violence in Nigeria since 1999. The biggest story out of that is Boko Haram, and that's what I focused on. Nate has done a lot of great work with Boko, but he focuses on farmer-herder conflict in Delta. So I've looked extensively into this. With the exception of Ansaru and a handful of other instances, Boko Haram is not HYM. They're not looking to abduct a white girl to, like, Yank out this ransom. And this is the regional security office at the embassy. They should know better. This is a group that has, you know, a, a mandate to look at security in the country. And they said to me, and this is, you know, a, a quote that is modified by my crappy memory, but the gist of it was, you know, oh, we haven't really been paying too much attention to that. Which is kind of insane, simply because they didn't have any folks from the embassy heading up that way. And so when I told them, you know, the hotel I plan to stay at, they went to show me a quote-unquote aerial view of the hotel because they were planning on going up later that month and they were also going to stay at that hotel. And it was as if they had never left the walls of the compound because they said, oh, you see, here, this hotel is safe because it's bounded by walls on three sides and at the fourth side is a gate. And it's just this moment where, like, I might be younger with less military experience, but I've worked in the field and these guys seem to not understand that that gate is going to be a metal pole staffed by a guy who's earning, you know, an embarrassingly low salary for how much security is in his hands. And the walls are likely not nearly high enough to be like anything of interest for security. And finally, like, the hotel hasn't been a target and will likely not be a target in the coming weeks until we see Boko Haram shift that way, right? Like, but they were just applying the same kind of perverted best practices 
forgetting that the best practice is to contextualize your strategy for the conflict that you're in and the local characteristics of that conflict. But they were just kind of like summarizing, like, oh, yeah, we'll, like, we'll go to a place where, uh, you know, there's going to be walls and a gate, and uh, the only thing we have to worry about is uh, white folks getting abducted. Just, it's infuriating to be around because those are people who have policy influence. <laughs> yeah, so that's my rant for the day. <laughs> so why don't we look at how Boko Haram utilizes women? And, and you have touched on this a little bit already, wives and suicide bombers, which I'd like you to discuss in more detail. But what are some of the roles that you see women taking on in Boko Haram? Sure. So... Um, in terms of camp life, um, I think I'll start there and then move out to kind of the more innovative and characteristic we Boko Haram uses of women. Um, in camp life, you know, women in Boko Haram play the same roles that we've seen in a number of other conflicts, right? Like they provide domestic support. Um, certainly access to, to women and wives has been something that Boko Haram's uh, leaders have bolstered recruitment through. Um, women are also used as porters. Um, they help cook. They take care of the camp when men go on raids. And that's pretty standard, I think, for insurgencies worldwide. Where Boko Haram becomes really interesting is, one, in the use of the Chiba girls as a a PR strategy, and I, I know that sounds callous, but the Chibok abductions launched Boko Haram into the, the global public in a way that I don't think Boko Haram is expecting. And when you're trying to, to cultivate a fearsome reputation um, and potentially you know, gain patronage from uh, other terrorist groups, Certainly having a reputation like the one that came about because of the press focus on the Chibok abductions is helpful. I'm just going to pause while this uh, motorcade apparently accompanied by a helicopter passes by. All right, we're back. Um, one of the, the most innovative ways that programs use women, though, is in the use of female suicide bombers. Um, and I wrote a piece on this with... Uh, uh, Dr. Mia Bloom, who is at Georgia State, um, when I was working at the National Defense University, uh, and it can be found, it was in uh, Volume 6.1 of PRISM, P-R-I-S-M. Um, and Boko Haram has used more female suicide bombers in a shorter period of time than any other insurgency that we have the data on. And that's really interesting, and you know, Dr. Bloom and I developed a thesis that this was both for their symbolic value, um, because the the kind of cognitive dissonance of a young schoolgirl being such a deadly weapon um, and and being used in that way by the insurgency is certainly helpful for. Any, any terrorist group that's looking to kind of have the civilian population cowed in its presence. Um, but also strategically, we saw an increased use in female suicide bombers um, in the aftermath of the Nigerian government deploying more soldiers to urban centers. And where you see female suicide bombers 
being used isn't when they're raiding villages, but it's often on civilian soft targets in the middle of uh, urban centers, which is really interesting because it suggests then that women um, were a way for the insurgency to maintain an urban footprint while also expanding into the rural areas and seeking to claim more territory, which strategically, I mean, that's really valuable um, to be able to continue recruiting in urban areas, to continue to have access to, uh, you know, the, the different trade routes and, and, you know, just frankly the benefits of being uh, in an area that's densely populated um, while also avoiding uh, the somewhat indiscriminate crackdowns um, that the Nigerian government engages in during these counterinsurgency and counterterrorism operations. Um, so I'm working now with um, Jason Warner at the um, at West Point um, on a, a project on suicide bombers in general in Nigeria, and we're, we're going to try and parse out whether or not there's any difference in the ways that Women are used as suicide bombers, men are used as suicide bombers, uh, and children are used as suicide bombers. And when you use the term used, which I'm thinking about other conflict areas and other conflicts that we've seen currently and in the past again, are any of the women willing suicide bombers, or is this unwilling suicide bombers? Is it a combination of the two? So it's, it's definitely a combination. Um, and I, I want to say because of the, the prevalence of child suicide bomb, child bombers in Boko Haram, I'm not certain if suicide bomber is what we should be calling them in that instance, right? If you're eight years old, you certainly can't consent to that. Um, but in general, it is a mix between uh, of women who are of age consent, those who want to commit the bombings, um, and... Some of the women that I interviewed said that it was often widows who would be used as suicide bombers um, and a mixture of girls who don't necessarily know what's going to happen. Um, and so I talked with some vigilantes who said some of the suicide bombers would either be holding bags with explosives or wouldn't understand what the significance of the, the vest or the belt that they were wearing was. Um, and that there's evidence that they were being detonated remotely as opposed to self-detonation. Also, yeah. <laughs> also, also on that topic, do you ever see cases of individual women or young girls being drugged before actually being sent out, strapped with explosives? So we, I haven't heard of that. That being said, I just there's not the forensic capability in Nigeria to test for that. Mm-hmm. Um. I've heard among some of the Boko Haram cells that there's a painkiller abuse. Uh, the, the name of the drug begins with a P. It's like paracetamol. Anyway, um, but uh, when I would talk to people about like, oh, you know, is this uncommon for you know, Boko Haram? Like, uh, but unfortunately, it seems that just abuse of that painkiller in the region is fairly widespread. So people weren't surprised. It wasn't a defining characteristic of Boko Haram. It was just sort of like, well, yeah, they take it, so do a bunch of other people. Um, one boy that I talked to who was a vigilante said that of the, the younger suicide bombers, he had been abducted by Boko Haram, escaped, became a vigilante. Um, and he said of the younger girls at times, they would tell them, you know, 
their families were waiting for them if they did this, or it'll just feel like a mosquito bite, um, or, you know, you're, you're going to get a reward once you do this. Um, and so I, I'm not certain if there's drugging, but there is absolutely indoctrination. <laughs> and looking at, once again, not just suicide bombing rules of being in local home, but all the other rules that women do, being couriers, cooks, cleaners, you know, bargaining chips even, what type of incentive, of course, other than the bargaining chip aspect, but what types of incentives does this give women? I know you mentioned they have a sense that they're getting education, whether it's indoctrination as we might look at it, but, you know, for them it's education. They're learning how to read and write potentially. But what other incentives for a woman, woman, excuse me, might join Boko Haram provide them with? So... One of the ones that really stood out to me, which I was surprised by, was how many women said that being given bride price directly to them rather than to their parents was a a significant factor um, in drawing them towards the insurgency. Um, And they, the insurgency apparently justifies this through a chronic interpretation that bride price was originally supposed to be paid to the woman and that the practice of paying it to her parents is, is a corruption. Um, and so that was a frequent refrain. Another frequent refrain was um, that wife seclusion was a condition to be aspired to. Um, and that's been the case generally in the region for a number of years now. Um, if you think about it, it's clearly a marker of, of wealth for a man to be able to forego his, his wife's labor and instead provide for her while she just attends to unpaid domestic duties. Um, and so women in Boko Haram aren't permitted to farm. They, they are bound to, uh, you know, remain in their compounds. And uh, their veiling practices are really interesting and at times foreign to the region. Um, but the women, you know, as a Western feminist, my gut reaction was, how could you, you know, stand to be you know, just kept in the home. And this older woman who had actually followed her son into Boko Haram said, you know, given the choice to farm or not farm, I would rather just attend to my chores in the house. Um, and so it's, it makes sense when you think about it in terms of, yeah, do I want to engage in backbreaking agricultural labor in, you know, uh, the Sahel? Or do I want to, you know, engage in perhaps softer at times easier domestic labor and be justified religiously for it. So. Yeah, it, it does make a lot of sense when it's put in such simple words. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think if I was given that choice in that situation, I'd probably think the same way. <laughs> but then, okay, so on the flip side, I've heard of accounts of women that are actually fighting against Boko Haram, and in my mind, I can think of the Borno State based civilian joint task force. Yeah. I was wondering if we could discuss this because I find this also very interesting when looking at women in the context of Boko Haram, but these women are actually fighting against them. Yeah, the uh, the vigilantes are a really interesting phenomenon in Nigeria. Um, it, it, you know, it's worth noting that even before Boko Haram, vigilantism in Nigeria had a fairly significant history. Um, and part of that is, in my opinion, because even though Nigeria is a federal 
a government like the United States where you have a national government and then subnational state level units. Um, in Nigeria, states don't have their own police forces. And so you, you really only have a police force at the national level, which isn't very effective in responding to the sort of everyday policing tasks um, that a subnational unit would. And so these vigilante groups have proliferated uh, in part out of necessity and in part because of the, the political patronage opportunities that they open up. Um, and so the JTF gets a lot of good press, and a lot of that press is deserved. Um, but they've also engaged in gross human rights abuses and are an undeniably politicized force. Um, and in fact, now many in the government consider them to be the next great looming threat because they don't know how they're going to reintegrate them into society. Um, but yes, uh, amongst the CJTF's ranks and amongst some other vigilante groups in Adamawa and Yobe State, there are women within the ranks. Um, and their motivations for joining seem really similar to the men who join. There's social respect. Um, there's, at times, payment. Um, you know, a, a sense of giving back, a sense of duty, a sense of purpose. At times, retribution for Boko Haram's abuses against their own family uh, and protecting their communities. Um, but I actually got the chance to speak to three female vigilantes in Yola when I was there uh, in December 2015. And, I mean, they were... I'm trying to think of how to, to phrase this. They were obviously quite proud to be amongst the few women on the force, but they were also, it seemed reticent to discuss the challenges that they faced as women there, um, particularly because some of their male counterparts kept wandering over to, to check in to see what we were talking about. Um, so even women that are quote-unquote empowered in, in a way that I think feminists and women in the West recognize more readily, there's still this sort of effort to monitor and censor women, if that makes sense. No, it does, definitely. And looking at what you just said with the CJFT, and also looking at the topic of your forthcoming book, and I don't want you to give us too much of, of a of, you know, the bulk of, I'm sure, something that you're going to be writing about, um, but maybe a teaser. You know, we see, and you've mentioned it, that within security and conflict studies, there's this grouping of women and children together a lot. You see it in a lot of articles and research, but they're two very separate issues, at least in my mind. So this is the big question that I want to ask you, and like I said, it, it does go towards your book and your topic, but why do you think the role of gender has this been misunderstood in conflict studies? <sighs> yeah, it's a big question. <laughs> um, oh, man. Uh, I don't want to say simply misogyny, but that's uh, kind of immediately what springs to mind. Um, I'm going to take this in, in a couple of parts. So, so, the women, women and, and children, children grouping infuriates uh, me because it reduces women to a, a demographic that lacks autonomy, right? Like, oh, we need to save the women and children. Uh, and children very clearly need additional protection and assistance from the state. They do not have the capacity to make decisions. 
and grouping women into that not only is a disservice to women, it also makes your policy fundamentally flawed, right? It's the failure to recognize the autonomy of women that creates conditions in which groups, however violent and abhorrent they are, that recognize the autonomy of women, have an immediate leg up over the state, right? And so I think... I think it, it's... Oh, man, I'm going, I'm going real, real undergrad right here. I think it's a dialectic uh, in, in which the grouping of women with children, children uh, and the failure to recognize their autonomy gives rise to policy that reduces the ways in which women can exercise their autonomy. And it's this vicious feedback, uh, feedback loop. Uh, and, I mean, I think not having women at the, at the table, table um, globally, globally <laughs> um, makes it so that, so that when we develop national, national security policies, policies or post-conflict programs, programs there's, there's just a fundamental, fundamental misunderstanding of what the needs are. You know, again, the boys can play around with military equipment all that they want, but at the end of the conflict, who's your able-bodied population? It's going to be women. And, and if you, if you don't, don't design, design post-conflict programs with an understanding that that's going to be the demographic with the greatest potential to enact change and that will be bearing the burden of rebuilding communities, then you're, you know, you're building a house on a foundation of sand. And then we're always shocked. It's like, oh, how did this happen? Why do societies keep relapsing into conflict? Well, because our post-conflict reconciliation programs only serve to re-entrench social instability through institutionalizing marginalization and inequity, you know, be it along ethnic, religious, and gendered lines, at times all of them. Um, so that was a big question. I think I got about 10% of it. Uh, did, I, did I miss any glaring aspects of it? No, no, no. I think that was a a great answer. It's like I said, it was a very difficult question. I sort of threw it at you, so you you handled it very well. And actually, something you mentioned, I wanted to build off of, and I'm going to ask you this question in two parts. And one of them is, what are the challenges that women face coming out of Boko Haram, whether they were willing members, wives, kidnapped girls? And then touching on something that you just mentioned with the big question. What do you think women's roles will be in redevelopment of the region if and when Nigeria finds itself in a much more peaceful situation? As you said, women are a huge part of the society. They have so much to offer. And in conflict regions, we see many men being killed. So we tend to have more women. So those are the two questions I have for you. And I guess it's a good way to sort of end the show and bring it to a conclusion as well. So I wanted to throw that out to you. Sure. So the, the stigma associated with women who have been in Boko Haram is immense. There's a really great report on this called Bad Blood. Um, and I always forget who wrote it. And then I always get like an angry note from the actual person that wrote it. So I'm just going to say Google Bad Blood, Boko Haram. Uh, ignore all the Taylor Swift videos and read this excellent report uh, on the challenges that women 
who are attempting to reintegrate into societies after they are freed from Boko Haram, Boko Haram face, um, you know, people consider it, consider them to be almost like lepers, you know, like interaction with them could, could poison you or your family. Um, they're considered, quote, hyenas amongst dogs. I mean, it's, and their children face that stigma as well, which is really heartbreaking. Um, the, the Borno government and the Nigerian government have tried to increase the number of trained um, psychologists and um, social workers, but it, it just the scale of the crisis has made it so that these efforts are a drop in the bucket, um, you know, to re-socialize entire communities throughout the Northeast to, to see these women as women, as people. Um, as, as those deserving of respect and compassion is going to be difficult simply because the region is just so traumatized. And so moving forward, it's frustrating that I don't see women being prioritized in the post-conflict reconciliation plan. So I read the PCNI, I think it's President's Presidential Committee on the Northeast Initiative, they came out with this, like, 800-page thing called the Buhari Plan. And I went through, and I read it. And I kept a Google Doc full of some of the most ridiculous claims in it, chief among them being that the government thinks that they'll have the resettlement crisis finished, uh, solved within five years, which statistically just, no, you won't. Um, the IDMC estimates the average length of displacement uh, in a sub-Saharan African conflict is... Like 10 years, and that's, you know, clocks starts once conflict stops, and this conflict is ongoing, and this is a displacement scale that, you know, dwarfs what we're seeing in a number of other conflicts. Um, but also, women were just kind of in afterthought. So even though Nigeria has a national action plan as a result of the UN Security Council Resolution 1325, it's still not a, a and I hate this term, but gender is still not quote-unquote mainstreamed. Everything still feels very tacked on. But when you walk around these IDP camps and communities, you you see only women. You know, you, you might have very young men, toddlers, children, and old men, but you don't have able-bodied young men in the numbers that you're going to have women. And so it's phenomenally frustrating to me, and it's something that I, I want to prioritize when I begin this job in Abuja. It's really amplifying the needs and the voices of women. But so far, they're not at the heart of reconciliation. And unfortunately, in my view, that means that even if and when they, quote-unquote, mop up Boko Haram, what you're doing is setting the stage for another group to come forward and capitalize on the marginalization and oppression of the Northeast in general, and women in particular. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show again, because you have been a guest in the past. And no, thank also, you. Yeah, also good luck with your up-and-coming major move overseas. And hopefully we'll have you back on in the near future, and especially with the book coming out. I will be very excited to read that. So thank you so much for being on the show, Hillary. Thanks, Thanks so, so much. much. So good to talk to you.